0: You have accessed Entry 238.RV1214, Certificate Number 39584. Jacqueline
1: Cochran. Ken, have you ever been on a commercial airline flight where the pilot came in over the intercom and it was a woman?
0: Whoa, plot twist. That has only happened to me once, mm. and it was very noticeable. Mm-hmm. You know, you realize just how many sexist assumptions you're carrying around with you because
1: I dropped my peanuts. Uh-huh. I was so surprised. Did you feel any even momentary sort of loss of confidence? <laughs> like subconsciously before the woke part of my forebrain caught up. Well, because it was a shock to you, right? To hear a female pilot. You hear women's voices all the time on airplanes but it's still rare to hear it come from the cockpit. Sure, you hear you hear them in the kind of traditional
0: subservient role of mm. someone bringing you drinks, Although problematic. Although, uh, they're,
1: fly, they're flight there. attendants definitely control the plane.
0: They're there primarily for your safety. Yeah, they always right. say that now. That's right. We're here primarily for your safety. It's just a coincidence that we spend 90% of our time bringing you snacks and soft drinks. I was not aware of any loss of confidence. Good. I think that speaks in my highly for me. Yeah, I've had Several other times since then I've seen a cockpit door open and seen that a co-pilot is a woman. Mm-hmm. But that was the one and only time I've ever had a female pilot come over the PA.
1: Well, you know, uh, women are still making inroads into the field of aviation, and a big part of that is that they were prohibited from flying in the Air Force and Navy for much of the history of aviation. Of course, that's the feeder for most... Commercial airline pilots, right? Right. Like a a ton of them are ex-military? Although now there are an awful lot of female pilots in the the combat services, right? They're flying all the, I mean, the new F-35 has a lot of female test pilots and new fighter pilots. So that will change over time. We'll see more and more female airline pilots. But that doesn't reflect the fact that women played a major role in the dawn of aviation. They were early pilots and enthusiastic early pilots. That's interesting,
0: because you wouldn't think that was a time period where women would have been encouraged to try the new
1: dangerous thing. No, but it was, um, because it's uh, a flying machine, Which is one of of the euphemisms. Do you still call it that? (laughs) I do call them flying machines.
0: I can't decide if I'm going to drive or take a flying machine Well, that's what they are.
1: And it's still kind of astonishing that that we have made machines that can uh, accomplish so many great feats.
0: So you want to keep that name so you keep a sense of wonder and awe.
1: Flying machine. Let's get on our flying, get aboard our flying machine. But uh, flying machines like cars and other motor vehicles were great equalizers, right? Any yes. Anyone with a sort of daring do and natural sort of balance or a feeling for the machine could pilot as well as anyone else. And there were not yet any
0: existing stereotypes to say that, well, clearly men are more gifted as mechanics, or, well, this is a field that women don't go into. Like the fact that it's a new field probably makes it virgin territory.
1: Well, there were all those stereotypes, (laughs) of course, because it was, uh, uh, when female pilots arrived on the scene, it was considered shocking. But there have always been people of every gender who are driven, motivated by uh, internal confidence or internal competitiveness or just uh, spirit of adventure that in the early days of a new technology, are able to really kind of push through the expectations and create for themselves, even, I mean, in many cases, they create a bubble for themselves, but it doesn't extend then to the larger culture. I guess I was thinking
0: about the example of early computer programmers Mm -hmm. like your mom Mm -hmm. um, who were able to take that field at a time when men hadn't decided to take it over yet. You know, it wasn't prestige work for whatever reason. Therefore, it wasn't traditionally masculine. And it wasn't until later that the field gets gentrified by men saying, no, 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 this is for people like ourselves. And at that point, uh, it kind of self-selects and young kids think, oh, well, that's, for men I'm not I'm not good at that.
1: Right, interestingly the original female computer programmers because it was key entry, you know, at a keyboard, mm-hmm. it was considered secretarial work, right? What's the closest thing we have to this? And so women were recruited into computer programming because it seemed like women's work, uh- and it was only then that it was I mean women pioneered the fact that this was really advanced mathematics or it was a kind of spatial and theoretical thinking.
0: And of course, this didn't happen with aviation. Nobody was like, women are the ones who are pushing shopping carts, therefore. (laughs) No, but. but they, They had to, by sheer force of will, be like, this is a new thing, which I want to
1: try. Yeah, and it was novel enough and rare enough in its early days that even, I mean, that anyone that undertook it was considered to be a kind of daredevil or, um, you know, it wasn't commonplace. So right it was still. So if you're
0: already a kind of a
1: barrier buster
0: and, you know, it's, it must've been very liberating. It's, it's the same reason early British feminists loved the bicycle. Uh, oh, sure. You know, we, you know, we have so many limitations on the kinds of things we can do for ourselves and do alone. You know, here's a machine that, that, totally expands our radius. And that must have been true for aviation
1: as well. It was, and I mean, I think everyone is familiar with the most famous American female aviatrix, which was the (laughs) the, the term of art. We don't say aviatrix anymore, huh? (laughs) We don't, it's less common uh, turn of phrase.
0: I got in trouble in seventh grade for putting um, poetess on some essay I was writing about Emily Dickinson, which I, I thought would be I did not know about gender-neutral nouns. This had not reached the seventh grade yet. And so I thought I was just being very precise. And a very serious recent grad student, she had to sit me down and explain to me why we don't say poetess.
1: Well, I don't use the word actress anymore. What do you say? Actor. It seems like a gender-neutral term. But it's tricky because the uh, it's Oscar season and the Oscars
0: are built on the premise that male and female acting is a very different field somehow. That's right. It is very different. Because men can play Churchill. <laughs> it's always five men playing <laughs> Churchill. And then the other category, they can just change it to Churchill's and non Churchills. They don't have to call it men a uh, actor and actor.
1: I will play the Dane. <laughs> so do you you don't say Aviatrix? Uh, although I do like to use aviatrix because it's such a beautiful word. Do you say dominatrix? I, or do you call them both dominators? I do say dominatrix. I would like to hire a dominator Again, for the evening. Again, one of the most beautiful words, dominatrix.
0: Are there others? My aunt was the executrix of her dad's will, although right? I don't know if the legal documents actually said executrix. But think how
1: beautiful that is with two X's. Exact- Executrix. That's hard for me with my uh, complicated tongue architecture to say properly. Executrix. Maybe you need a more complicated tongue architecture. I get a little little confused halfway through. Executrix, and I I wander off. But the most famous American... uh, Sorry, I never even let you finish your (laughs) sentence because I was so taken. (laughs) A famous American aviatrix is, of course, Amelia Earhart, who was one of the pioneers of female aviation. And I don't
0: like her sucking up all the air in the room because this is often what happens with these kind of um, early achievers is they become a token. You get one African-American scientist and it's George Washington Carver and everyone else can suck it.
1: Well, but also Earhart very, very glamorously died mysteriously and at the peak of her career and became a legend that persists to this day.
0: Well, here's what I think. I don't want to give away any spoilers. I don't know how you're going to develop this, but does Jacqueline Cochran die young at the height of her powers?
1: Jacqueline Cochran does not.
0: Okay, so guess what? I already like her better. Yeah. She's clearly a better pilot.
1: (laughs) Not necessarily. Because she
0: came back. (laughs) The number one thing I think a pilot should do is land where they wanted to get to.
1: And Amelia Earhart could not manage that one simple thing. It is true that a pilot you could argue that the number one goal of a pirate is to, a uh, pilot. Did you say pirate? Uh, the number one goal of a pirate is to board the ship and take the treasure. It's to bury booty on uh, Cutlass Beach. The number one goal of a pilot is to, paradoxically get back down to the ground. (laughs) Right. Right?
0: It's it's kind of the fundamental
1: tension of aviation. You get up there and you're like, wait a second, what am I doing? It's like Mount Everest. Well, I've mentioned before, in fact, on our last episode of the Omnibus, although futurelings, of course... They're listening in alphabetical order. Well, time is a flat circle to them, so all episodes of Omnibus all came out at the same time. They exist at the same time? Yeah. How do they listen
0: to them? Is it like that uh, Flaming Lips record? You're supposed to just turn every... Entry on simultaneously and yeah, just listen to right. them.
1: That put them all in a parking garage on different cassette players and listen to them as one giant symphony.
0: I choose to believe the future is listening to these in alphabetical order. So they just got done with um, maybe Christian Science Reading Rooms.
1: Oh, great. Well, Welcome or, aboard. Or they could be listening to them in uh, numerical order by entry number. But those also go alphabetically. <laughs> 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 Spoilers. Uh, well, but they will know the numerical numbers, but they will not be using our alphabet, presumably. I hope they enjoy Father Coughlin.
0: That's what's up next.
1: Stick around. Well, the la- in, in our own time, the last entry we uh, recorded was Mount Everest mm-hmm. bodies. And I mentioned uh, an old pilot friend of mine by the name of Cliff Hudson, who flies small planes up to Mount McKinley. I'm sorry, Denali. Denali.
0: To this day, does he fly?
1: Uh, Cliff, I think, is retired, and Hmm. his sons have taken over. But, um, Cliff Hudson is one of several legendary bush pilots who landed on McKinley. But his chief competitor was a man by the name of Don Sheldon. Do pilots have enemies? Oh, for sure they do. And Don Sheldon is Alaska's most famous bush pilot. Don Ah, Sheldon... It's his Amelia Earhart. Yeah, Don Sheldon crashed his plane on Mount McKinley, Denali. Denali.
0: Uh, I just want to speak for the indigenous people here and say Denali.
1: Yeah, I think you should say Denali every time. Now, uh, now whenever I say Mount McKinley, comma, Denali, it will be one, it's one turn of phrase. Uh, but Don Sheldon was famous for crashing his airplane and walking away from it. But Don also, like, pioneered a lot of routes on Mount McKinley, Denali. Denali. But uh, Cliff Hudson used to sort of, ride, I mean, these guys are very, laconic Alaskan pilot types. They don't talk a lot. But I remember asking, I was fascinated with Don Sheldon when I was a little boy. Because he's always crashing his damn plane. Well, yeah, and he was very rakish. He has a daughter my age. Uh,
0: like Sky King and Penny? Were you interested in marrying into the Sheldon dynasty? Well,
1: it's interesting. One time in high school, I was I an was underperformer in high school, as I maybe discussed before. I graduated last in my class. Of how many people? Of 386 East High graduates in the class of 86. Wow, you I really have to you really have to
0: work to, to
1: graduate less. Well, that's actually what the principal of my school said when he called me into his office and, and handed me a printout of all the graduating seniors and said, I'd like you to find your name on this list. And I, I started at number one and well, said, well, I'm not number one. What
0: kind of maneuver is this? Does he do this every year? Does he just want to make people feel bad?
1: No, he and I were close. And when when I found my name, when he said, turn to the back, and I saw that there were something like 18 kids who had higher GPAs that weren't graduating were being held back, he said, you know, you worked really hard for four years to be in this position last. And I was like, high five. Why did he graduate you? Uh, They wanted me out of the high school. They knew that holding me back would only damage them.
0: They were tired of all the pranks being done to the Captain Cook statue. No more pranks.
1: But, uh... During, and I don't want to out my principal, Don Shackelford, but during this period, at one point, he was a judge of an, a statewide essay contest of seniors around the state. And I was sitting in his office one day with my feet up on his desk, and he said, you know, if you're going to sit in here all day, skip class and sit in the principal's office.
0: You had not been called in? You just wanted to you just wanted to chill?
1: I liked him a lot, and we would sit and chat.
0: I can, I totally knew you were the kid that just wanted to be with adults.
1: Yeah. And and the thing is, my teachers generally, if I was going to go sit in the principal's office and just shoot the bull, they were happier too because I wasn't in the class. The class is actually going to run. Causing problems. Smoothly. So I was sitting in his office and he said, you know, if you're going to sit in here and disrupt me, why don't you make yourself useful? Start reading these student essays from around the state and put them in three piles, good, fine, and bad. And I was like, sure. So I started reading these essays and I you know, some of them were, I mean, a lot of them were terrible. Alaska is a land of contrast. And uh, some of them were fine. But I started reading one that was a thinly veiled, now this is real, I'm really outing her now, but it was sort of a thinly veiled, like, fanfic. Um, was it erotica? Erotica, <laughs> where her story was, because she lived in Talkeetna, and her story was. Oh, this is Don Sheldon's Don daughter. Don Sheldon's daughter. And he was, you know, a, a statewide and I guess internationally famous bush pilot, although bush pilot fame decreases dramatically when you leave Alaska. When
0: you get below the 49th <laughs> parallel. Uh, <49 laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. And her essay was about, she was out riding her horse on the banks of the Talkeetna River, and she sees a young man come down to the water and kind of stare out across the river, and she rides her horse over And says, you know, what are you doing here? And he says, I just moved here from the big city. And I don't know any of your Alaskan ways. And she says. Is is this one of these vampire novels? She says, get on the back of my horse. And then throughout the course of her story, it's basically one of these fish-out-of-water stories where he keeps, he doesn't know how to light a fire. He doesn't know how to chop down a tree or walk across a beaver dam. He doesn't know how to get an airplane running when the carburetor heat is you know, permanently on or off. And she just, she's just laughing at this character that she's created out of her own imagination, but also falling in love with him. And she has put herself in the role of like the old salty sourdough because, you know, that's who she was. Because she knows was. how to walk across a beaver yeah, and she was 16 or 17. And so I got done reading this essay, and I was like, I have found the best essay of all the essays. And it was written by, and I didn't realize it was Don Sheldon's daughter at first. I had to kind of go, I, I, I had to put it together. She didn't, she didn't go to your school? No, she's from Tokina. I don't I know mean, I mean, I live is. in Alaska. Tokina is this little town up in the middle of nowhere. Anyway, so I put a big gold star on it. Now, I don't think she ended up winning the essay contest, but as a peer of hers and someone who was being charged to do this job by my own principal, I mean, I, th- I had exceeded my authority at several levels, but, but you, anyway. You were not
0: allowed to, to reach the, the role of gold stars. No.
1: He, he like slaps your hand. Many years later, Cliff Hudson said to me under his breath at one point, when I was sort of extolling the virtues of Don Sheldon, whom I knew was. Who, who at that point was dead. And I knew that he and Cliff Hudson were competitors. You were just trying to annoy Cliff? Well, I just was like, you know, what about Don? Wasn't he like some kind of, do you agree that he was like the rakish guy? And Cliff said, you know, Don crashed his plane 23 times and I never crashed a single time. But he's the one that everybody writes all the books about. And Cliff Hudson had done all the incredible feats as well. So you're right when you say that it's not fair that Amelia Earhart be the most celebrated female aviatrix because she's primarily famous for crashing. She failed at the number one task. Whereas one of her main uh, competitors in the time, rivals, let's say, was the topic of today's show, a woman by the name of Jacqueline Cochran.
0: See, I have never heard this name before
1: today. Well, and this is the tragedy, because Jacqueline Cochran deserves to be on, in all the history books. and money, on on the $20 bill. (laughs) Well, and on the tips of all of our tongues, when we talk about pioneers of aviation. Because Jacqueline Cochran was not only like a preeminent female aviator, but was also just one of the most extraordinary aviators of her time. And her time spanned from the early thirties, her time as a, as an aviator from the early thirties all the way until her death in 1980. Oh, she lived to the eighties. Uh, to 1980, so I guess you could call that the 80s. You don't call I it think, the 80s? I think she lived until January of 1980, so technically she lived into the 80s. For you, do the 80s don't start till the hostages get released or something? Uh, it's one of those things where uh, the 70s actually started in about 1972, and you could say that the 80s started in 78, but then you're doing the 70s a disservice. The 80s starts when MTV starts. Yeah, which was 81. The 90s definitely didn't start until 1991. The 90s, in fact, have not yet started. Oh. A lot of people don't know that. But Cochrane had a, a fascinating story even before she first took up flying. She was born in Florida in a date that is somewhat disputed. Some people say 1906. Some said 1910. Is this the female celebrity uh, obfuscating her age thing? or Well, Jacqueline was a, a yarn spinner and a self-mythologizer. So it's potentially that she was manipulating her age. It was potentially that she just didn't get her story straight. Um, I mean, she also
0: came from very humble circumstances, right? Where there might be a little more vagueness to the actual day, month, year.
1: Right. Extremely humble beginnings. She was born in Muskogee, Florida. So she's not an Okie from Muskogee. She's a Floridian from Muskogee. Doesn't rhyme. Um, her her birth name was Bessie Lee Pittman.
0: Wait, her name's not Jacqueline Cochran. Her, da- her name was not Jacqueline. She Cochran. just invented that. It's a series of magazine covers, or she invented Jacqueline just out of whole cloth because um, it's long. That's eight, what you like about Jacqueline: ten look, letters. Well, look
1: out! And also in the nineteen thirties, Jacqueline, I think, probably was a very sophisticated sounding name. It's very French. Sounds
0: European. It has Jacqueline. it has jackal in it, hmm. so there's something kind of predatory and dangerous
1: about it. Right. She was a proto-Palestinian terrorist. Car- <laughs> she was Jacqueline the Carlos. Yeah. She was going <laughs> to shoot Charles de Gaulle. But uh, her humble beginnings did not suggest that she would live the life she did. Uh, but she was, from the very beginning, a, a precocious person and an ambitious one. At the age of eight, she, her family moved to Georgia and she worked in a cotton mill. Uh, and by the, the, age age, eight, wow. the age of eight, At the age of eight, uh, she had very little formal education, Didn't wasn't a super strong reader, uh, which plays into our story in a little bit. Uh, at age 14, she was married to a man by the name of Robert Cochran and by age 15 had had a son, uh, Robert Jr., who died uh, in youth or died in childhood. 14? Yeah.
0: So it's the mid-30s. I guess in Georgia, it's not super unusual for 14-year-olds to well, the mid, married.
1: So mid-20s. 20s, okay. Right. And then after their son died, they were divorced. And she pursued a lot of different avenues to try and get out of Georgia and out of poverty. She went to nursing school. She tried uh, to be a beautician. She worked a variety of jobs. And eventually kind of settled. She decided she didn't like a career in medicine and decided, uh, settled into beauty school. Um, the permanent wave machine that was so popular in the 1980s. It's, when
0: it's the giant thing that they lower over gossiping
1: women in old-timey uh, right. like New Yorker cartoons. It gives you curly hair, weirdly curly hair that smells very weird. You never see permanence anymore. But when we were kids, people had permanence a lot.
0: I feel like I still smell them sometimes if I go into a... You know, a kind of a mall barbershop kind of right, a place. A little old
1: lady place.
0: Yeah. So those, those, that age group is still getting their permanent waves, but it's a terrible smell. I don't even know what to compare it really to. really awful. Wet animal or,
1: yeah. It doesn't. Wet chemical animal. Does the hair stay like that smell or? It does for a long time. You know, in the late 60s, it was popular um, when Jimi Hendrix, you know, had his extraordinary afro, like Eric Clapton got a perm. Um, a lot of the members of Hendrix's, or the white members of Hendrix's band got big Afro perms. And, and people were still getting Otherwise, perms. their heads just look very small on the album covers. By comparison. It's like, are
0: these guys standing much further away? No, you have to explain. They're standing at the same distance from the photographer. Yeah. They just have much smaller hair. Smaller hair. They, hadn't, they don't have their perms yet.
1: These days, you would have a man bun up there or some kind of weird high ponytails, like Baby Spice high ponytails that could make your head look bigger. Or Uh, or, a a lot of people would just wear giant hats. I would just wear, I was going to say, I'd wear one of those big Rasta hats. Problem solved. You know, Bob Dylan had a natural uh, fro. We say Jufro, is that okay? Can you still say Jufro? That's what I would say. Uh, if I were the one that had said it, but you were the one that said it, so uh, please not, direct all mail to not, Ken. You Jennings. can
0: disagree and be like, <laughs> no, no, Ken, this this is a moment when we teach. We do not say Jufro.
1: But uh, Dylan, in the mid seventies, started also wearing a giant hat. So, he, but
2: <laughs> so <laughs> Dylan was always ahead of the curve. <laughs> Get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, $20 off your first box when you visit ButcherBox.com slash iHeart, or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's ButcherBox.com slash iHeart, or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Um,
1: but, uh... Her beauty school talents were immediately recognized. She was very good at creating glamour in other women. And ear, and reports from the Times say that... She's glamorous herself, She was right? very glamorous herself. Uh, she had a way about her. She was very careful about her appearance. And so through her beauty career, she was able to move to New York City and became kind of a smash in... New York City high society beauty world. And by by the early 30s, she had become a beautician at Antoine's, which was the salon in Saxe Fifth Avenue, patronized by all the wealthiest ladies. And in the course of her experience at Antoine's, being the beautician to the stars, several of the most wealthy of her patrons wanted to bring her with them everywhere they went. And uh, so their personal their personal uh, beautician. beautician.
0: I uh, ideologically I kind of dislike the idea that we could all just pull ourselves up by our humble bootstraps and make something of ourselves and that everyone deserves whatever economic stratum they wind up in. But I have to say, reading a story like Jacqueline Cochran's does convince me that there are certain people who uh, absolutely could,
1: no matter what, create their own world. Jacqueline Cochran, by all accounts, was extraordinarily dynamic, ambitious, captivating. Um, One of these people that walks into a room, even though she was born a sharecropper, you know, uh, working on at a dirt floor. Working at a cotton mill when she should have been in first grade. And had no education. Right. She created for herself this life where even by the early 30s, when she would have been like in her early 20s, she was a celebrated woman in the world of fashion and cosmetics.
0: And that, that you, you just come out of the box like that. She came out of the faucet with a kind of charisma you cannot duplicate or possibly even learn in many cases, I am guess.
1: Uh, uh, an inner drive, right. you know, that you see sometimes in extraordinary people. When you think about Madonna um, arriving on the scene and in her very first interviews, Madonna said, I will be the biggest star in the world. And everybody was like, you're really not that talented.
3: You're not a very <laughs> good
1: dancer or a very good singer. You're no like ravishing beauty. What makes you think that you have any chance at even being a minor star.
0: We have Diana Ross. We,
1: we yeah, don't right. need you from your steel town. And she was like, step aside, fools, and became
0: but what you Madonna. Don't, but what you don't see is all the interviews from all the young kids who were like,
1: I'm going to be the, I'm gonna biggest, be the star. biggest
0: I'm going to change the game. And right. then you never hear from uh, right. Agnes Blumenthal again. Sure, they end up being Soylent
1: Green. <laughs> well, fascinatingly, also, it's interesting how much people with this dynamism create their own luck. Um, what are her lucky breaks? Well, so Bessie Lee Pittman, who by this point in time has changed her name to Jacqueline Cochran. Yeah,
0: I'm not going to go to Saks and get my makeup done by Bessie Lee Pittman. No,
1: you want Jacqueline. Yeah. Uh, she goes to Florida with one of her wealthy patrons and is at a big fancy ball and is seated next to a man by the name of Floyd B. Odlum or Odlum, who, well, which, let's settle on one. Odlum or Odlum?
0: Uh, You decide. It's got to be Odlum. I say Odlum. Let's say Odlum. Floyd. This this was a time when Floyds were more common. There were a lot more Floyds. They they would blacken the sky like passenger pigeons.
1: It wasn't a thing where, I mean, I have a a good friend named Floyd who has recorded The Long Winters, actually, but there aren't very many. He must be one of
0: the last Floyds.
1: You're not, well, except now, like sport naming your male child is a thing that we do in our time. And after so many kids named Patterson or whatever, somebody's going to find Floyd.
0: Well, yeah, it's going to be all these prog dads naming their kids after Pink Floyd. You're right, there is probably a Floyd boom going on right now. I bet you if
1: you went to kindergarten somewhere, you'd find five Floyds. Five Floyds and six rushes. Uh, But Floyd uh, Odlum was smitten by this uh, dynamic young woman who had started by this point her own cosmetics company, or was in the process of starting her own cosmetics company.
0: Look at this! Um, like, look at this! Like, she's like, you know what? I want to. I want the supply chain. Yeah. Like, I'm going to be a brand. That's like she, she's ahead of her time. So
1: she started uh, Jacqueline Cochran Cosmetics, and she's seated next to this man. Now he's married with children. And yet he's very impressed with her, obviously. She's his uh, manic pixie dream girl. He's 14 years her senior. Is he wealthy and... uh, He's wealthy and at this Florida party because he's vacationing there with the other wealth, with the other swells.
0: And maybe looking to trade up, like at some point he's going to want the younger wife.
1: Well, and and they both recall being immediately smitten with one another, not just... Physically, but they make a they make a strong connection, and they they don't actually get together with one another for, or at least they don't publicly get together with one another for several years. But Floyd becomes her advisor, her confidant, and at one point she's talking about her cosmetics company and how she wants to expand. She wants to take her cosmetics around the country, open up uh, salons in different cities, and uh, Floyd just sort of offhandedly says. Well, in order to do that, you're going to need wings because, well, it's fairly self-evident what he meant. You would need to, wings to fly to all the different places. Metaphorically. Right. But uh, the idea hits her kind of like a lightning bolt, and she's now well aware of flying. Um, it, it, by the early 30s, it's this is the era sort of post-Barnstormer when airplanes start to become pretty sleek, pretty... And a means of transportation too, right? Right.
0: Like we're in the era of that. It's no longer a novelty.
1: But she gets back to New York and a good friend of hers suggests that she take flying lessons. So she goes out to Long Island and takes flying lessons, which is rare for a young woman at the
0: time. Wood Adlin, by the way, one of the richest men in America at this time. I was uh, looking at his resume. One of the 10 richest men. He made a fortune during the Depression owning a utilities company called Atlas owned a big stake in Northeast Airlines. Hmm. And uh, he was the guy that sold RKO to Howard Hughes. Well, there you go. He was, uh, so all kinds of crazy aviation-themed rich guys.
1: And you can imagine uh, for a, uh, you know, a 24-year-old Bessie Lee Pittman to be seated next to Floyd a at a dinner party. This is a window into another world. This is an elevator. Pretty good lucky stroke, but especially that the two of them would hit it off so famously. His first wife is also named Hortense. Oh. Hortense did not think of adopting a sleek European name, <laughs> and it comes back to find her. Uh, I've been in the elementary schools of Seattle now for several years as a, as a parent, and I have yet to meet a Hortense. That's not correct. All the office secretaries are named Hortense.
0: You just don't know. Oh, Right. I, don't, I all, don't call them by their first name. Secret hortenses. I call them sweetheart. There are definitely more Floyds than hortenses <laughs> these days. Hortense is past tense.
1: Yeah, right. Hortense has the unfortunate first syllable. Right.
0: Right. Which, right. In English, uh, you can't really conjugate a sentence using the hortense. Yeah,
1: you're not. G- <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm going to allow that. But also, yeah. You already dinged. You're not going to shorten that. You're not going to nickname that name very easily. Do you know
0: the Dorothy Parker joke? Like how to use horticulture in a sentence? Mm-mm. You can lead a horticulture, but you can't make her think.
1: Mm. Classic. I have heard that. Classic. Boy, she was a wag. Boy, she said some funny things. She did. Very witty lady. I'm but speaking of smart-driven women, surprised that more people don't know that about her. Um, she commences her flying lessons and gets her flying le- her. I'm sorry, her pilot's license, which normally takes about three months. She acquires it in three weeks' time.
0: Is this because she's so gifted or because it's literally a kind of fly-by-night operation?
1: She immediately feels an affinity for the machine. And this is a thing that you see sometimes. Um, to pilot any kind of motor vehicle is an athletic activity as well as, I mean, a lot of people get in a car and they drive it very passively. But the best drivers are very active in their control of the vehicle. They feel a connection to the machine, a physical connection.
0: It's interesting to think about what the thing in our genes or in our brain would be that makes us better at using an invention that's only 100 years old. You know, when when we evolved... Pretty much in our final form, hundreds of thousands of years ago, is it? I mean, do you think it's, it's like someone who's really good on a horse. Yeah, is it? Is it that kind of a?
1: Yeah, it's analogous to being good on a horse, or someone like the early Hawaiians who, I mean, someone right. first stood on a board and surfed it in on the waves. And there are there are surfers or skateboarders who just intuitively understand the idea of standing sideways on a board. And hurtling down a fall line,
0: because your consciousness expands so that yourself grows to include you and the vehicle, right, like when somebody comes into your lane on the freeway, you say he almost hit me when you mean he almost hit this piece of metal like ten feet in
1: front of me with his piece of metal with his piece of
0: metal right? but uh so it's like this is this is my body, like the land like i'm I'm treating the the struts or the landing gear or whatever as if it's extension of myself
1: and, and in our modern cars a lot of work has gone into the car so that we do not feel uh, intimate connection with it. We have soft padded seats and soft suspension and all these mechanical... And uh, for safety reasons, a crumple zone that keeps you away from the action. The crumple zone, but also power brakes, power steering mm. that take you away from the kineticism of the machine. And that's true of, of big airplanes now. I mean, the, uh, the, oh, sure, the I mean. airlines, I mean, those planes can fly themselves and do but in an airplane even small planes that you see flying around airports now it's much more like riding a motorcycle your your body is involved in flying in a lot of different ways because you have you're flying in three dimensions you're not just turning left and right and going up and down you also have pitch and yaw and you can the plane can skew and it can
0: slide. And it's more prone to the conditions around you, right? Like you know, except for very weird conditions, asphalt is asphalt whereas when you're in the air, the air currents can,
1: you know, you have wind, you have rain, kinds of stuff. you yeah. have uh you have pressure, you have tremendous other factors. And you can I mean, there are people who try to fly airplanes somewhat passively, letting the airplane kind of dictate how it's being buffeted. And there are others who Fly very rigidly and try and force the airplane to do things, and you know are fighting conditions all the time. And what are you? Are you a, a type A or a type B pilot? Well, I've unfortunately when when I was getting my pilot's license, I tended to be somewhat passive. Uh, Isn't as, that
0: good? Bend like bamboo or whatever. Wouldn't some Zen mastered like uh, well, it's Don much, Sheldon tell you to do that.
1: It's much better than flying rigidly, but there are those few. To whom the airplane becomes an extension of their body. And they're flying neither passively nor rigidly, but in complete harmony with the vehicle. And when the wind buffets it, it it's as natural as if you were walking down a street and the wind buffeted you. Because you understand the controls. You're using your feet, you're using and in, in an airplane, there's also heel-toe motion within your foot, as well as left-right. You're using the yoke to control, but that's also in out back forth um, a lot. And then you've wait, got wait.
0: Dumb this down for me. What are your feet doing in that kind of plane? Well, so
1: the your hands are on the stick, which is your hands are up, on the stick up right. and down. But uh, but on the tail of an aircraft, there are ailerons which uh-huh. go up and down on the tail, and that oh, that's your feet. That's your feet. Oh, I didn't know that. And that will that allows you to. I mean, it's yaw backwards. You know, the tail. Yaws backwards and forwards. Mm-hmm. The plane can be turned just with the feet, and the feet in conjunction with the yoke allow planes to do deep carving turns. And I mean, there are so many different ways that so you can for most turns. Turn would you use the yoke or would you use the feet? Both. The, you oh. use them together, uh, and together you're you're controlling the aircraft. So as wind is, as you have a crosswind, you can keep the plane in level flight by applying pressure to your foot into the wind. On, on the correct side. Right, so that you're compensating for wind. So she reported that on her very first flight she felt this connection to the craft and, you know, her future performance in the air kind of backs up this personal experience she had because she became an incredibly dynamic flyer. She reported... Immediately after getting her pilot's license, three weeks after first sitting in an aircraft, she borrowed an airplane and flew by dead reckoning from New York to Montreal, not having ever had a compass fully (laughs) explained to her. So she's flying. Wait a second.
0: She's learned how to fly an airplane. Yeah. But no one in the course of her life ever said, here's what a
1: compass does? No. And no one even during her, I mean, she rushed through pilot school, clearly, because... (laughs) Yeah, maybe she should have taken a little longer. No one really showed her what a compass was. So somewhere along the way to Montreal, she got lost, sighted an airstrip, landed, walked over and said to the people standing around, which way is Montreal? Hey, what's up? And they said, well, you know... Little lady, follow your compass heading, and she was like, "What's a compass?" (laughs) And so, a a, a man at
0: the airfield way to reinforce all their stereotypes (laughs) about you know know. think of everything that's going through their head as they see a woman pilot for the first time. Hey
1: Joe, check this out. Well, again, an amazing stroke of luck. Whoever this guy at the airport was, put her back in the airplane. Got a team of people out to the to the field, (laughs) and they wheeled her airplane around in circles while he barked at her, "Look at your compass." Look what it's doing. (laughs) And so she got a sense of her compass by this team of guys wheeling her around the airfield. And then she said, thanks, and took off again and made it to Montreal.
0: Wow. So uh, I guess what we learn is this awful kind of patronizing mansplaining saved a life.
1: In this case. (laughs)
0: In this one case,
1: get a group of guys to physically yank a plane around well, so she struck by this love of flying, but still pursuing her career as the... Uh, it's still a hobby, right? There's Maybe there's not a lot she can do at it's this point? It's still a hobby. What does a woman with a pilot's license do in the, in the early 30s? Well, I mean, what does anybody do except run the mail back and forth? But Um, but
0: she was not looking for a job in the skies. She's still a a powerful lipstick brand.
1: And in fact, she was using her airplane to go around and spread the good news of Jacqueline Cochran Cosmetics, which were also called Wings of Beauty. Oh, she's got a gimmick. Yeah, she called it Wings of Beauty. She's the makeup with an airplane. So she became a fairly celebrated person as this cosmetics um, baroness. Who also flew around? I, the country. I, I say all. all you say they're all, all barons. barons now.
0: It's male, female, male, female. It doesn't matter if you're doing the work of a baron, and your baronetcy, you're
1: baronetcy. Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, Baronessetcy. To me, it doesn't matter. But she was very competitive, and so started entering air races, which were a popular diversion for early pilots mm-hmm. uh, because there were still so many records to be set. She started entering air races. She had some trouble early on. Not, not trouble, but, I mean, she didn't win. She had airplane trouble. But by her third attempt, she actually won the Bendix Transcontinental Air Race, which was a, one of the preeminent air races at the time. Not just one in some women's division. Her second year, she won first place in the women's division, third place overall. Oh, third overall. By the third year, she won the entire race. In 1936, uh, Floyd Odlum finally divorced his wife, leaving his kids fatherless to run off with his his new love, Jacqueline. And for the rest of their lives, they remained happily married, although very independent, uh, pursuing their own business interests. I mean, Floyd supported Jacqueline, but never um, stood in her way as she set out to, to set all these Pioneering rent. Well, I mean, if nothing
0: else, she is now financially independent. She can worry work on whatever business ideas or uh, aviation ideas she has without worrying about paying the rent. She's now Mrs. Floyd Adlam, one of the richest women in America.
1: And this is one of the reasons, perhaps, that we don't know her as well or celebrate her as well. Because there is, in this American up-from-your-bootstraps kind of sense, uh, that uh, sense of our heroes, mm-hmm. that the fact that she then became wealthy, uh, uh, colored her accomplishment. In hindsight, you know, you read about her story;
0: it does kind of sound like an establishment society woman mm-hmm. at some point. I mean, spoiler warning: she's going to run for the
1: house as a Republican, right? And and she's a lifelong Republican, which is another um, another thing that kind of inhibits the idea, of, uh, or, or rather. It's a part of the the incongruity that we have always had in American politics where we think that the pioneers um, should also be liberals. Right. It's very hard for us to reconcile the log cabin Republicans. Uh, how can there be gay Republicans? How can there be black
0: Republicans? But of course, back then, I mean, in this – being socially progressive on women's issues was the platform of neither party. Right. You know, it was, you know, she's she's an Eisenhower Republican, and that's you right. know, I'm sure her ideas would not be well represented by any particular stripe of either party today.
1: But uh, but by the 1970s, when we're looking for heroes of the women's movement, you know, she she some pearl
0: wearing uh, uh, it's California, the, it's the Anita Bryant problem, millionaire's wife, right, right.
3: start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com slash start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n dot com slash start
1: anyway so by the end of the 30s as war in europe loomed jacqueline took a very uh, strong interest in the war effort and in particular recognized that this was going to be a, a war determined by air power. And she went to work with the, under the premise that women were not going to be allowed to fly in combat, but they could be utilized, female pilots could be utilized in all the sort of support roles so that more men could be freed up to actually pilot aircraft in combat. And, I was
0: uh, I was at Pearl Harbor over the holiday break and looking at the museums and they had an exhibit about women who ended up flying during yeah. during the war and she turned out to be exactly right right like there turned out to be a huge shortage of skilled pilots we, America just did not have enough pilots to fight a, a world war and
1: there was a lot of suspicion that there would be that that women could provide this valuable service, ferrying aircraft, towing, target drones. Mm -hmm. um, Cargo. cargo. And uh, General Hap Arnold, the head of the Air Force at the time, was initially very reluctant. But Jacqueline, like, for instance... I don't believe that somebody in military brass would want to keep women out of
0: power. That doesn't sound like them.
1: One of the most famous stories, when she first entered the Bendix transcontinental race, it was prohibited. Women were prohibited to compete. And so rather than accept that, She went to every single male pilot that was competing in the race and got them to sign a a document that said, I do not personally object to a woman competing in this race. smart. Because imagine how you look if you don't sign, right? Right. And then she took that document to the organizers of the race and said, no one objects, none of the other pilots object, what's your problem? And they allowed her to race. So this is kind of the, the way that a single person can pioneer through their own sort of... Ambition and uh, refusal to accept the status quo. Mm -hmm. So she went to Hap Arnold and said repeatedly uh, that this was a necessary component of the war effort. And what he discovered was that there were a lot of women pilots who had a lot more flying time than most of the men that were going into the war effort. You know, some of these pilots had a thousand hours of flight time or more.
0: That's interesting. And
1: these are just kind of young,
0: adventurous women who had, who had in found their, a new frontier. In their own
1: region. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Amelia Earhart started a group called the 99s, which was a, a group of female pilots, or, or, or a um, sorority of female pilots. And they had slumber parties. Well. Pillow fights. Yeah. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. what you would always hope. And it was another element of Jacqueline's success as a public figure, which was that although a lot of female pilots were assumed to be tomboys during this era, and Amelia Earhart certainly I was, about to say. was a tomboy, Jacqueline always made sure whenever she landed after she'd set some record or won some race, that she would put her makeup on. Get my face on. So when she left the aircraft, she was a picture of femininity. That's smart. It was. Turned the patriarchy's assumptions against themselves. In 1941, she was the first female pilot to fly a bomber across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, By 1943, she had convinced Hap Arnold that uh, women were not just good as ferrying pilots, but could provide a a whole panoply of services to the Air Force. And she became the director of the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, or WASPs, which was probably the group that you you saw in Pearl Harbor celebrated in Pearl Harbor. Yeah, although
0: you know I wouldn't go with that acronym today. The Wasps. I mean, it's very it's very appealing. Then it starts with W. Yes, it's a flying animal.
1: Yes, a, a wicked
0: killing flying animal. Because they called the the navy the navy artillery was the waves, the right? Waves, so they yeah. loved these clever.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. I guess whack is not so good. What is a whack? I mean, it's a Washington Athletic Club. <laughs> In 1945, at the end of the war, she was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal, uh, arguably the first female aviator to receive the. or I'm sorry, some people say the first woman to receive the Distinguished Service Medal, although there were some in World War One that could make a case. Hmm. But uh, the first female aviator, uh, and by 1948, she'd been promoted to lieutenant colonel in the Air Force Reserve. Now, during this period, she's also routinely flying in races. Setting records for speed and altitude and uh, consistently winning races where she is not just the first female to win it, but also is just beating all comers. Uh, That's
0: very persuasive to a lot of people who would otherwise be, well, you know, sure. But you hear it today with people who are like, yeah, any high school player would be an all-star in the WNBA or whatever. Right, right, right. So it's nice when the level of accomplishment is actually, it's a field where it can actually be perfectly parallel.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in 1950, she so. won the Harmon Trophy, which is a trophy that still exists today for uh, achievements in aviation. And in 1953, at the age of 47, with the help of her longtime friend Chuck Yeager, whoa, she broke the sound barrier. Uh, the first woman to break the sound barrier.
0: That's not that long. He's what, 49? Yeah. So that's not that long after.
1: No. No, no, no. Uh, he, she, she wanted to make the transition to jet aircraft. Because she saw that, although she had all these speed records and race records in propeller craft, that jet aircraft were the future.
0: That must have taken some doing. Because, of course, Jaeger didn't break the record just because he was such an amazing pilot. He was assigned to test these new experimental aircraft that could do it. Right. So she must have got the same dispensation. Well,
1: the Air Force didn't want to let her fly one of their fighter jets. And so she went to, again, in a... sort of exemplifying her spirit, she got the Canadian Air Force to loan <laughs> her one of their F-86s and broke the sound barrier in a Canadian Air Force jet. And even though she was an officer in the in the Air Force Reserve, uh, the brass didn't want, they didn't want to loan her a jet for you this. Don't,
0: you don't know my jet. It's actually, uh, it's from Canada.
1: <laughs> it, it doesn't go here. In 1961, at the age of, Fifty-five. She set an altitude record of fifty-five thousand two hundred and fifty-five feet, or sixteen thousand eight hundred meters.
0: Are pilots still good pilots in their fifties? Is is it not like mathematicians or whatever, where you're done at thirty, or you know, running backs? Like, is there a there?
1: There are particularly at these extreme levels, um, your body is under tremendous stress. I would imagine uh, your these airplanes at those speeds become very difficult to control. You can go into these terrible situations like a flat spin. You can lose control of the aircraft and you really have to physically wrestle it. Uh, She seems to have been lucky in not having crashed or gone, through. you know, she's never had to eject. But she was, these were punishing experiences, but she just had a physicality and a kind of indomitability.
0: I also, I have relatives who were raised probably like her very poor and, you know, today still have, in middle age and old age, still have the, the scars of, you know, growing up without enough to eat and without good medical care. And the fact that she is still going strong well into her 50s after the kind of childhood she must backwards childhood she must have had is pretty amazing.
1: Well, at the age of 58 or 59, she set a women's world speed record of 1,429 miles per hour or uh, 2,300 kilometers per hour uh, in an F-104 and contributed in, uh, the F-104 had a really bad reputation. It was a supersonic aircraft that was unstable and crashed a lot, had a really bad reputation. And her success, at this point, the Air Force had decided, well, we had better let Jacqueline just fly whatever airplane she wants. So they let her use this plane and she contributed to to rehabilitating its reputation. Uh, she was the first woman to ever land an airplane on an aircraft carrier. She was the first woman to fly Mach 2. Uh, wow. In 1969, she was promoted to a colonel in the Air Force Reserve, full bird colonel. And as you mentioned earlier, she ran for Congress in uh, the 29th District of California and defeated something like five other uh Five other men, or five rather, men, not other men. She defeated five men to get the Republican nomination, but was defeated in the general election by the first Asian American to ever sit in the US Congress, the first Sikh yeah, it's American a Sikh guy, Dalip Singh Sound. That's interesting. Who uh, was a pioneering Uh, U.S. congressman. That
0: California desert district had the first Sikh congressman. It did, it did. There can't have been that many women running for the house back then. I mean, it was not heard of, but... uh, There were not.
1: She would have been one of very few. But she was devastated by that experience, I think. It was one of the few things she ever did in her life where she lost. And so she never again ran for public office. But she was a great booster of Eisenhower. She was responsible... uh, She helped recruit him to run for president. Yeah, it
0: seems like she's one of the crucial factors in him making the decision to actually
1: run. But one of the – not, I wouldn't say it colored her record at all, but she was instrumental in the early days of the Mercury program to try and get women into the astronaut corps. She felt that there was nothing – just as there was nothing intrinsic to being a woman that kept you from being an aggressive and record-breaking pilot – there was nothing that should prohibit a woman from being an astronaut, and this again was so the airbud argument. Radical.
0: There's no rule that says <laughs> a dog can't play basketball, but it's probably correct in this case, right? It's not like the uh, like the Mercury astronauts were lifting
1: weights or whatever. No, but one of the requirements in the early uh, recruiting of Mercury astronauts was that they be service pilots, you know, fighter pilots, mm-hmm. and that they have engineering degrees. And Jacqueline had neither, Uh, and it was impossible to find a woman who had flown in the Air Force or Navy because they weren't allowed to. So Uh, they never had to say, no girl's allowed. Right, they just said, you can't meet these requirements. But she found 13 women who managed to pass all the tests that the Mercury astronauts had passed. But it was conducted privately. It wasn't an official NASA testing but it was the same tests of the same rigor. It's, it's, it's SpaceX or whatever? It's kind of a private right.
0: duplication
1: of a NASA effort? To both make the point and also bring uh, women into the space program. But John Glenn and Scott Carpenter uh, testified that they felt that women weren't, weren't equal to this strenuous Pursuit.
0: Did you see the Scott Carpenter quote?
1: No. What did he say? <laughs> he think? said
0: that if we allowed a woman up there, it would, it would exceed our weight allowance for recreational equipment. Now, there's two readings there, both of which are awful. Oof! Is it just that she would overpack and bring her big steamer trunk of shoes and cosmetics? Or Or is that a woman is recreational equipment in a space capsule?
1: I think that's what he meant. It's not great. Not a good look, Scott. He probably pulled his Corvette over and uh, leaned out and gave that quip to the reporters and everyone laughed. (laughs) Peeled away in a (laughs) cloud of dust. It turned out, though, that she became a doubter of women in NASA in this early period. And it's fairly well documented that the sense at the time was that she didn't want the competition for being America's Uh, most famous female pilot.
0: If women actually go into space, that's something she
1: can't do. Right, and she's in her 60s by this point, and she would be overshadowed by these female astronauts. And so what she said was, it's too important for us to beat the Soviets to the moon to get distracted by this... Uh, this by, is a by integrating, Yeah, by She's one of these
0: people on Twitter who's like, don't lose sight of the real issue. <laughs> and then whatever it is. Flint right. water, Michigan hasn't had clean water in, or right. Right. the Russians clearly have blackmail.
1: Yeah, free Leonard Peltier. <laughs> yeah, don't lose sight of that. So it, it ended up that uh, although the Russians had female cosmonauts, it was many years later before uh, the United States put the first woman in space, uh, the first American woman in space. And there are now many legendary female astronauts and, of course, a tremendous cadre of female pilots in the armed services that will produce, in the future, I think a much more gender-balanced world of aviation. But Jacqueline Cochran arguably more than any other woman, pioneered this realm for women uh, in spite of, as you say, an overwhelming preponderance of sort of engineering-type crew-cut dudes standing athwart the world of aviation. And she did it both by her strength of will but also by her talent. And crazily, Jacqueline Cochran Cosmetics survived and thrived even after her death. So during this entire period, she was also... also, She's also like a Mary Kay makeup magnus? Well, not Mary Kay. She's like Estee Lauder. I mean, she was... the. I'm sure there are women listening to the program who remember Jacqueline Cochran Cosmetics.
0: Wouldn't it be nice if all the colors had kind of some aviation gimmick? It's like, (laughs) I'm putting on my... Aileron Ash or my uh,
1: <laughs> whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, right. Astronaut Azure. <laughs>
0: I think the most interesting thing I read about Jacqueline Cochran is that despite her you know, being a lifelong Republican, one of her greatest services was to the, maybe her greatest political legacy to America was to the other side of the aisle. I guess in 1948, she got invited to a political lunch in Dallas for somebody who was running for the Senate there. And of course she's a a national celebrity. And uh, it turns out that the candidate has been hospitalized with an illness that he doesn't want to get out. So she goes to the hospital room and she says, oh no, they don't know what's going on here. Floyd had this, this is kidney stones. And she's like, you need treatment now. And the candidate's like, well, I'm in the middle of it. And she persuades the wife, you know, he needs treatment now. Floyd went to the Mayo Clinic. I have a plane. I can get him to the Mayo Clinic. So she sneaks the can out of the back door of the hospital and flies him to Rochester, Minnesota, where he immediately recovers. And that's how she saved the life of Lyndon Johnson. What? Uh, She had to convince Lyndon and Lady Bird that he had kidney stones and needed her to fly him to Minnesota. And I guess for the rest of her life, Lady Bird Johnson credited Jacqueline Cochran with, saving future President Johnson's life. That's phenomenal.
1: Well, and that's an indication of what a celebrity she was in her time. And it's all the more astonishing that we don't really know of her now. Although, in 2004, the airport in Indio, California, right in the vicinity of Palm Springs and Palm Desert in the Coachella Valley, which was the region where she set a lot of her records. This was mm-hmm. this became her second home, or her, I guess her her lasting home. She she
0: loved it. It was great for to be a test pilot there, and I guess for her husband's arthritis, it was also really good
1: her too. rheumatoid arthritis. Her husband's rheumatoid arthritis, which plagued him his whole life, it was it was much improved in the desert climate. Uh, in two thousand four, they renamed what had formerly been, I think, uh, Palm Desert Airport or Desert uh, Resort Airport or something. Mm-hmm. They renamed it the Jacqueline Cochran Airport. So you today, can,
0: everybody going to Coachella, yeah, is
1: that right? That's right. Gets off at Jacqueline,
0: Con- uh, Jacqueline Cochran S- Regional Airport. So
1: maybe, maybe futurelings, when everything else is lost to time, will still be going to Coachella to see a hologram Snoop Dogg, and uh, they'll land at Jacqueline Cochran.
0: Maybe there'll be a hologram Jacqueline Cochran there as yeah, well,
1: and tip their little their oxygen mask hat to Jacqueline as they land. And that
0: concludes Jacqueline Cochran. Entry 238.RV1214 Certificate number 39584 in the omnibus. Futurelings, we uh, commend you for the uh, what we are confident is the complete lack of the blight of social media in your society. I mean, Possibly that's because you are some kind of sentient uh, eel writhing at the bottom of a, a deep ocean trench.
1: Well, if you think about like an
0: eel king,
1: they may be just socially mediating through their electrical pulses.
0: When I think about an eel king, do I think about
1: any? That have like, you ever thought of an eel Is king? that like a
0: rat king where all their tails are tied together? Yeah,
1: you've seen a bunch of eels all squirreled up together.
0: I, I don't know that I have. Well, so So, you haven't lived. So you you go around tying eels' tails together (laughs) and then you put little crowns on them and say, That's what a hobo king is, by the way. Oh. Tie a bunch of hobos
1: together and uh, (laughs) put crowns on their heads. And that's the hobo king. And then put one pie on a windowsill. (laughs) (laughs) See what happens.
0: But in our day, when we did not live at the bottom of deep ocean Mm -hmm. trenches, Mm -hmm. we instead wasted our waking hours on social media. And uh, as a result, at Omnibus Project was. Omnipresent on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of the above.
1: If you're an eel in the bottom of an ocean trench, do you know you're in the ocean? Yeah, no. I yeah, mean, no. As Eddie Vedder would say, yeah, 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 no, no, no. <laughs>
0: it's like an Aquaman. They can just talk down there somehow. Right. They, they have a word for the, the stuff up here. You know, They say we live in the air ocean or whatever. Like oh, air ocean. They're in the default part of the world. We're right. the ones that are struggling out here. In, They're in the majority of the world. Yeah. We're gasping for air.
1: Right, right. <sighs>
0: uh, John Roderick was at John Roderick yes. at Instagram, where he, can, he shares his eel-based uh, wisdom. Huh. He t- Lots of videos of you tying eels' tails together and just seeing what happens.
1: Come on over and hang out. Leave a witty comment <laughs> like everyone else. It's you
0: being mad about the neighbor's dog. And then it's just basically, it's just uh, cruelty to animals is your whole Instagram.
1: Cruelty to animals and a lot of just sort of, uh, well, selfies. Sure. Uh, like proto-sexts. S- proto- oh, I see. Sexts. Not
0: sex, but sex. It's proto- so it's like proto-foreplay.
1: Yeah. You're going to see a lot of bare-chested photos of me- gazing lovingly into the camera, trying to seduce you. In a variety of
0: hats and eyewear. That's right. Uh, I was at Ken Jennings on Twitter, uh, which is entirely desexualized.
1: Ken is extremely funny on Twitter. You'll love him there. He only tweets something really, really, really problematic about once, what would you say, six weeks? Once every six weeks? I find
0: that I tweet a lot less now. Yeah. And so the number of problematic tweets goes way down just (laughs) by the numbers. You know, now it's like, uh, now it's once every three months just because I.
1: Yeah, right. Because you only tweet six times a day instead of 60. Right, I'm taking fewer shots.
0: Uh, we, we received uh, email correspondence. I'm actually going through the email today uh, at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Several people saying they wanted to send us fruitcakes, but they didn't because you were so worried about tampering.
1: I wasn't worried about it. I just didn't want any fruitcakes. But here's the thing. I want fruitcake. Oh, well, send your fruitcakes to Ken Jennings at <laughs> P.O. Box 55744 Shoreline, Washington 98155.
0: Yeah, and, uh, you know, not please not uh, home-baked stuff. Yeah. I just want factory food full of preservatives that I'm confident can survive. The U.S. mail plus whatever the month it takes me to go check my P.O. Box.
1: You can continue to send me vintage glasses frames at that address. Vintage glasses frames really of any style. If your grandfather died and he had five pairs of glasses lying around, just send them off to me. Send one. That's your tithe. 20% of your grandpa's glasses should go to John Roderick. At P.O. Box 55744 Shoreline, Washington 98155.
0: If you send both a fruitcake and a pair of glasses, we will take a photograph of the glasses on... The fruitcake.
1: Do not bury the glasses in the fruitcake. No. This
0: isn't a prison break. We're going to we're gonna put it on top of the fruitcake. We're going to call it Mr. Fruitcake, and we'll do a funny <laughs> skit and send it to
1: you. Hilarious. Also, go to our fan group, Omnibus Futurelings, at Facebook. You, I totally forgot to mention yeah, the futurelings. Right, and I shouldn't, no, because should never.
0: Because what a devoted, fun group they are.
1: Yes, they are the ones that buoy our spirits when times are the darkest.
0: When we're worried that nobody is going to correct factual, three factual errors we made in this show... <sighs>
1: We can count on them. If, there, if a day goes by where I'm like, no one has mocked my pronunciation of various words, I'll go to the future If you feel that John should not have said panoply, because it sounds like a board game, please let him know there. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. Although really, we just hope and pray that it doesn't come in our lifetimes and that it doesn't really affect our children's lives. But after that, it's hard to know or care.
0: I don't have grandkids yet. I'm not attached to them at all. They're hypothetical.
1: Maybe, if, they're, maybe they're awful. They I've, Almost certainly they are.
0: Can you imagine second-generation uh, uh, offspring Gen- of Ken Jennings? Jennings's?
1: No. Ugh. Nobody wants that. My grandfather was Ken Jennings in Jeopardy. I'm sure he'll be saying Ugh. that a lot. What a bunch of jerks. Can you
0: imagine all the boasting you would do <laughs> if your grandfather had been on a game show 60 years before?
1: I would never shut up. Uh, I, I boasted that my grandfather died alone in a, in a Los Angeles flophouse hotel in the 50s. Uh, if he had done anything, I'd be boasting about it still. Anyway, if the worst comes soon, if Ken Jennings's uh, progeny's progeny come unto the world with their bratty little voices, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.